is special, we move it to the morning so that more people can participate and your friends who need of healing can come. There are people who have been asking, well, we read about the Bible, we read about Jesus healed in the past, but does Jesus still heal today? I'm so glad today we have a testimony from our brothers and sisters, Suzanne and Al- and Alan will be sharing here. They worship at Coniston Church. Suzanne served as a district judge, and Alan is also is, is, a, uh, is a doctor. They come and testify about God's goodness. If you have read the newspaper articles way back in 2013, you have read about her story. At the time, she was a lawyer. She was uh, working in, in, in Hong Kong, and suddenly she collapsed, went into a coma, and later was declared brain dead by the doctors there. Doctor asked them to prepare for the worst. Her brother and the other members of the family flew from Singapore all the way there to Hong Kong. And then they pray. And they continue to trust the Lord for miracles. And today she stands here. It's a miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ who has healed her. I'm so glad that today she can come and then testify. So let's put our hands together and welcome Suzanne. Thank you, Pastor Chiming. Um, and thank you uh, for, for this honour and privilege uh, for being here. I'll start off with a good morning. It's almost lunchtime, I know. But, um, you know, this is important. So uh, let me just jump straight into the story. What happened to me um, happened eight years ago. It was in April, it was the 20th of April, 2009. And it was really a day like any other day. Um, uh, I had two young kids at that time. They were uh, 6 and and 12. And, um, you know, I saw them off the bus like every morning. And then I took my dog for a walk. And usually I would walk about 45 minutes. But for some reason on that day, I turned back after 15 minutes. And I don't really remember feeling unwell. I don't really recall why I did that, but I did turn back. And when I got home, I had a shower and then everything became very hazy. And the last thing I remember was my husband saying to me, oh, you look very bad. I'm going to call the ambulance. And I said to him, no, no, don't call the ambulance. And that was really what I recall. So um, usually my husband will be here to give the testimony together, but he's not able to come today. So uh, he's given me his notes. And you know, because I was in a coma and I was asleep most of the time, uh, this really is his story. So I'll be reading from part of, of his notes. All right. So this is John's account of the event. He said, I was concerned, but I was not really alarmed when she came home early from a walk. She said she felt strange and cold and that she would take a quick shower and go to bed. Five minutes later, I put my head into the bedroom to see how she was. And I was very alarmed to see that she had an almost transparent ghost-like look about her. I was becoming very worried because this was the first time I'd seen her in that state. And at that point, she started to slur her words. Five minutes passed and I decided that this was getting, things were getting worse. So I went ahead to call for the ambulance, despite her saying not to. The ambulance arrived in a very short time, but the emergency people were also baffled by her quickly deteriorating condition, even as they put her in a trolley to take her to the hospital. I decided not to go in the ambulance, but instead drove myself, following from behind, following the ambulance from behind. It was morning rush hour in Hong Kong. And the roads were busy. And even when without sirens or lights, the ambulance seemed to miraculously cut, cut through the traffic very swiftly. And five minutes into the journey, however, the ambulance started putting on its flashing lights. So my alarm levels went rising. 
when I arrived at the hospital, I found a parking space fairly quickly. And this is, this is an important detail because it's a very small hospital with about 10 parking lots. I then rushed into the emergency room where Suzanne was being handed over from the ambulance men to the doctors. I saw her on the trolley looking as if she was asleep. So I asked the ambulance, if, um, she would, the ambulance attendants if she was conscious, but was told she was okay and awake. I then went over her and tried to speak to her, but got no response. So I shook her, with, I shook her and yet got no response again, and immediately raised the alarm with the doctors. At that point, the doctors and all the nurses ran, raced into frenzied action, commencing CPR and electric shocks to restart her heart while inserting intravenous drips. Minutes passed and at last they managed to get a pulse back, but they had to inject huge amounts of adrenaline and dopamine to achieve this. But once the heart rate came back, it just seemed to slow down and the heart stopped again. And this, this repeated. Every time they managed to get some heartbeat, it would just stop again. This CPR and shock cycle went on for 90 minutes before they managed to get Suzanne stable, but only by continuing to pump in her huge amounts of drugs. They then sent her for a CAT scan and, and then on to intensive care. At this point, I really did not know what to do. I was shocked and stunned. I decided to call Suzanne's family in Singapore to tell them of the horrific news. And Alan and one of her brothers, Alan, my brother here, and one of her brothers and her mother arranged to fly up to Hong Kong that day. I then went to be with Suzanne and my first impression of Suzanne's ICU room was that it was icy cold. The reason for that, I found out later, was that the body recovers best at low temperatures. When I saw her surrounded by officials' impersonal beeping machines with a myriad of tubes and wires attached to her body, I just felt truly and utterly helpless. Later on in the evening, the head of the ICU came and they sat down with the family and quite literally just dropped the bomb. She told us that Suzanne had suffered extensive brain damage such that two neurologists declared that she was brain dead. Her brain stem was exhibiting no activity whatsoever and I was told that I had to appreciate the fact that Suzanne had gone and to start thinking about how best to proceed. In other words, to, to contemplate the turning off of the machines that were keeping her alive. The doctor's exact words were, I had to come to terms with the fact that Suzanne had left us she had gone, and it was critical to start thinking about the next step. All this happened on the Monday. On the Tuesday morning, I spoke to Alan, Suzanne's brother, who had been praying over her constantly through the night. He had been praying and declaring Psalm 118, over, uh, Psalm 118 verse 17 over her, that Suzanne would not die, but will live to declare the works of the Lord. He also told me that God had spoken to him, saying that Suzanne would be fine, and would be restored and brought back to life within a few days. I truly wanted to believe him, but at that time, I just assumed he was simply saying it to try to make me feel better. That Tuesday afternoon, as I walked into Suzanne's ICU room, I noticed that the room temperature was much higher than the icy levels it had been at previously. The hospital had clearly decided that Suzanne was not going to make any recovery, and there was simply no point in wasting electricity. On the Wednesday morning, as I went to Suzanne's room, I was greeted by the senior neurologist who had just conducted a further brain scan. <clears throat> he was there to say yet again that there was no chance of any recovery, and while they had now detected some slight activity in Suzanne's brain, 
There was absolutely no reason to get my hopes up. She was still brain dead, and these were just reflexes. I noticed, however, that the room went back to ice cold, so maybe they thought that some sort of recovery may be possible. On the following days, the improvement gained momentum at an amazing rate. She seemed restless in the bed. The doctors continued to maintain that it was very common for someone in a brain-dead coma to behave in this way. But over the next, hours, uh, the next few hours, she started to move her arms and legs. Then she no longer needed the machines to start the whole breathing process and she, soon she was completely taken off them. Basic brain activity was coming back. Later, she raised her head and finally she opened her eyes. At first, even when she opened her eyes, she could not see anything, but soon she could and by Friday, Suzanne had regained consciousness. She was very, very groggy, but aware of her proceedings and most important of all, she was able to recognize people. So there was no brain damage. So God healed me. I collapsed on the Monday and by the following Monday, I was out of the hospital. So in seven days, he restored me completely. Okay, so that's John's account. So let me share with you what I've experienced. When I was in the coma, the last thing, as I said, was um, I started getting a very hazy and then I, I heard John saying to me, I'm going to call the ambulance. And I said, no, no. And that was it. Okay. The next thing I saw was myself lying in this bed. I was propped up. Oh, I was covered with a blanket. I had pillows. It was very comfortable. There was nothing uncomfortable about it. I was not in any pain or discomfort. But I just had a sensation that I was unable to speak and I was unable to move. And then um, this man appeared at the base of my bed, not threatening in any way, very peaceful, very normal. And he said to me, if you um, cannot speak, you cannot move, right? Why don't you just follow me? And there have been people who asked me, why, why did you not think it was Jesus? I really don't know. But I knew there was something wrong and I believe it was prompt, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I just said to this man, you leave me alone because I'm a child of God. Okay? It's a very strange thing to have for me to have said that at that time. And let me just you know, tell you the state of my faith at that, at that time. I was born into a Christian family. I was raised as a Christian, always believed that God existed. I don't think there was ever a doubt in my mind that God existed. But I was at best what you can describe as a nominal Christian. God had no place in my life. I was busy with my career, busy with planning my life, you know, raising my children, not interested in the church. Attended church services only because I felt my children needed some moral grounding. So if rugby classes were cancelled or anything else was cancelled, we would go to church. Otherwise, we wouldn't go to church. So that, that was the state of my, my faith in God. And I only turned to Him when I needed Him. I knew that He was somebody who could answer prayers. That I believed. And I would turn to Him whenever things went wrong with my life. But shortly after that, when things started getting right, I'll forget Him again. So it was strange to me that at, in that state, I cried out to him and I was able to say that. And this man then disappeared and um, I remember not seeing Jesus but feeling his presence. And I remember lying in that bed crying out to him, Jesus, Jesus, you know, please come, please save me. And I was annoyed that it was taking so long, you know. I was just... But there was such um, faith and, and I've been reminded since that there was such childlike faith. I didn't even think that there was a possibility that it wouldn't happen. I just believed that he was going to come and it was a matter of time. 
And I sang every hymn I knew, every song I could remember, which was really quite pathetic. I could barely remember anything, but I could say the Lord's Prayer. And I said that repeatedly over and over again. And then this man came back. He, he, came, he faded in and out. And the very last time he came back, he said, he started turning angry. And he said, um, at, at that stage, I felt the presence of my daughter by, by my bedside. And he said, if you don't come with me, I'm going to take her. And again, I can tell you, I don't know if I can do this in the natural. But something in me, just something prompted me to say, you are a liar. You have no hold over either of us because we are both children of God. So go. And he disappeared. And I woke up at that moment to see my husband standing before me. I woke up with all these tubes. I really didn't know what was going on. Um, so obviously, later on, I found out. Um, and that was on the Friday then on Saturday, they removed all the tubes from me. I started to um, speak a little and to drink a little. On, by the Sunday, I was sitting up and speaking and even started walking around. And the doctors really didn't know what to do with me. Um, they made me sign you know, the necessary documents to release them of all liability. And then they discharged me on Monday. So I went back home, as I said, seven days. Now, when I collapsed... The doctors really didn't know what happened, but when they scanned my heart, they found a tear in the aortic valve of my heart. And they called it a very severe tear, and that they thought actually that was the, what had contributed to my collapse. On the Sunday after I woke up from the coma, the doctors again did a scan, and they found that the tear in my aortic valve had healed, such that it was no longer severe, but it was now termed moderate. And I understand from the doctors that this is actually not possible. Without, the, the healing does not take place naturally and you do need some surgical intervention in order for that to happen. After moving back to Singapore, um, some months later, you know, I continued to go for my checkups and the cardiologists, when they were checking, they could not detect any trace of the tear to my aortic valve. So God healed me fully. Praise God. The doctors in Hong... Yeah, praise God. Clap offering. Um, the doctors in Hong Kong and in Singapore to this day remain unable to find a medical explanation for what transpired. Okay, so, you know, this was an amazing experience for me um, because I was saved really by God's grace. And uh, a lot of things, you know, through the years have, He has revealed a lot of things to me, but a few things I want to share with you. I think first of all was the fact that God was so in control and God was so watching over me. Um, <clears throat> you know, with, with the upbringing we all have, we are all programmed to be very kiasu, right? So there's a tendency, and I, I am the worst, of wanting to be in control of everything. We make plans, we plan to the minute detail, and we think that, you know, everything's going to work out. But I've realized that the reality is many things never go as planned, right? But notwithstanding, as I look back upon my life, I know that so much of my life, things happen not because of me, not because of luck, not because of coincidence, but because God was there and God was in control and, and He had a plan for me. Okay? And, and, and again, in this entire incident, it was very clear to me that God's hand was in it. You know, if you, if you look back, if um, we recall the, the facts, if I had uh, not walked back after 15 minutes, I shudder to think what would have happened. Um, I was walking in a, in a reservoir that was next to our house. So it's sort of like MacRitchie Mountain Trails, not, 
not many people walking by. If I had collapsed out there, I don't think I'll be here today. Okay? The fact that God blessed me with a disobedient husband who never listens to anything I, was, I say, he called the ambulance. Um, the fact that the, the, the ambulance was able to go through rush hour traffic, it may not seem like anything, but that's miraculous in Hong Kong. At 9 o'clock, rush hour traffic and the ambulance was able to, to move. And John always says it was like the parting of the Red Seas. It was the parting of the cars. Um, and then going to the hospital and the doctors doing this CPR for 90 minutes. Because I understand the protocol is only for half an hour. If they try to revive the patient after half an hour, nothing happens. They give up. But this doctor continued for 90 minutes. And I asked the doctor after this who, who turns out to be a Buddhist. I asked him what happened. He said... He just, don't know, he just carried on and then was 90 minutes. Anyway, it was a Catholic hospital and he told the nuns, even though he was Buddhist, please go and say, give thanks and, and hold a mask to give thanks. So God is good. Um, so I, I know very much that God's hand was in all of this and I know very much that he was in control that day. Right? And I think the other big thing that has made a huge impression on me is is... God's faithfulness and His mercy. As I said, I was probably one of the most undeserving people, not interested in God, used God whenever I needed to, you know, and then dumped Him when I didn't. And yet, in my time of need, I just had to call out His name and He came to help. And I think that the miracle of my, my uh, physical healing is of course awesome. It's amazing. It's not something that has ever happened, and it's a huge gift to me. But I think the bigger gift to me was the miracle of my spiritual healing. It was like God woke me up from a spiritual coma. And since then, He sort of opened up my eyes and lifted the scales and just shown me um, and led me on a journey. So I really praise Him and I give thanks to Him for that. Um, and I think the last point I want to make is the fact that, you know, God is so real. We talk about the God in our acts, we read the Bible and we listen to the miracles and we think, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that miracle's great. But this happened to me and it happened to me eight years ago and it's real. And God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He's the same God who healed me and He's the same God who restored my life. So God can do the same for all of you and He can bring restoration and resurrection to any area in your life. Okay? So, um, I will leave you with this, that, you know, I really hope that this testimony will bless you and will uh, raise your faith. Um, and I will just leave it to my brother to share his aspect of the story. Good morning, church. I'll share from my uh, account of what happened to my sister eight years ago. Now, I remember I was working in my clinic at that time. It was in the morning that I suddenly received a phone call from my brother-in-law, John. And he said, your sister has collapsed. She's in hospital. She's in ICU. And he didn't know what to do. He said, never mind. I'll fly up that day to see her. So my thinking at that time was uh, nothing very serious. Just go there, see her, a few days, come back. And that's it. So, uh, but I, when I arrived there on... That Monday night, it was almost midnight. Then I realized how serious my sister was. When I saw her, she was in the, in the ICU. She was on the ventilator, lots of drips on her. I spoke to the doctor in charge. 
she, she, she was the head of ICU. She gathered all of us together and she told us that uh, my sister had brainstem death. Now, brainstem death is a, it's a medical term used when a person is on a ventilator because the ventilator is actually uh, sustaining the life because when your brainstem uh, dies, you cannot breathe anymore. So there's no longer any more spontaneous breathing. And all the other tests will also show that your, you actually your brain doesn't work anymore. And if you're not in the machine, you're actually dead. But it's only the machine sustaining you. So uh, she said, be prepared for the worst to my brother-in-law that you, know, you have come to terms with what's going to happen, that she's, she's actually dead, uh, then that there's no hope of recovery. Of course, I remember my brother-in-law asking her in her in her experience as a doctor, has she seen anybody coming back from brainstem death? And she said, no. Being a doctor myself, I myself have never seen anybody coming back from brainstem death. In fact, when I came back to Singapore, I went to read up and research about brainstem death. It says, uh, because uh, Singapore, they actually had a, a medical act about brainstem death to, for people, for, obviously it was for our organ harvesting. Again, the articles all show that actually 10,000 cases, there were nobody coming back from brainstem death documented. So that's why they, they are very certain that when a person's brainstem death is death and they can start harvesting the organs. So that was the situation at that time. And uh, I remember I was up the whole night praying for my sister. But there was no change. The next morning, she was the same. Uh, nothing was... There was no signs of any life. I remember asked for a second opinion from the, from the doctor in charge. I said, ask for a neurologist to come to have a look at her. And he came, he saw her, and he said the same thing. All the tests, medical tests, shows that she had brainstem death and told us to be prepared for the worst. Things just got worse and worse. Nothing got better. When I saw her again Tuesday evening, when her children came, I think everybody was crying because she looked so bad. Then uh, I still remember that, that time that not only did she look dead, but she actually had the stench of death over her. So uh, remember I went back that evening, prayed to God, asked him, you know, what's going to happen to my sister? You know, uh, give me a sign that she will come back. As I was praying, I, I, had, I felt peace. I felt that God was saying that she will come back. At the same time, uh, my, my wife in Singapore, Josie, also received a word from the Lord. She said she received the word resurrection life. And she spoke to my uh, brother-in-law, John, says, uh, don't worry, Suzanne will come back. And she says she had received the word resurrection life. So that night, I could sleep in peace. In spite of everything, I had peace. I went to sleep. And... The next day, Wednesday morning, things started to change. Now, John went to the hospital early in the morning uh, because uh, he had to send his kids to school. So he went down there early in the morning. And the nurses told him at the time that there was response to my sister. There was some twitching of her mouth as they were cleaning her up. And that's it. There were some stirrings and movements of her hands. So uh, we were all very excited. We went down to see her. And I continued to pray for her. And, and sure enough, as I examined her, there were signs of her moving her hands. There were twitching with muscles on and off. And there were a couple of occasions when actually, to me, as a medical doctor, I've never seen before. It's like 
she suddenly opened her eyes very wide, like trying to wake up from her sleep, and suddenly going back again to a coma. I remember that happened twice. And then the doctor came again to examine her. And although she had signs of movements, the doctor again told me, told my family members that she's dead. She's not going to recover. All these signs, all these movements are known as Lazarus movements. They are involuntary movements that dead people sometimes have on the machine. But things improve. In spite of what the doctor said, I I refused to believe what the doctor said. I said, she is private and she is improving and she is recovering. And things actually got better because she suddenly started to trigger the ventilator to breathe again. That's a sign that the brainstem is coming back to life because it's actually an indication that there is uh, activity in the brainstem. And initially, it was just like 5% of the time it was triggering the machine. But after an hour or so, it reached 90% of the time and, and it actually reached 100% of the time by the time I left hospital to, to fly back to Singapore. And things just slowly improved from there. You know, there was more response, there was more movements. But again, the doctors said, uh, no chance. Even she, if she wakes up, she says she'll be brain damaged, she'll be a vegetable. It says it's even unlikely she recover because at the time she said she had so many other com- complications at the time. Not only was she brainstem deaf because of all the t- time she was on the machine, she had kidney failure, she had uh, lung infection, she had uh, failure of the pituitary gland, and the doctor says don't raise a hope up. But remarkably, all of these complications within 24 hours they all settled down. So by Thursday she already improved so much, and uh, by Friday morning, she suddenly woke up and she could see the people around her. By Saturday, they took her off the ventilator. She was talking. By Sunday, she was up and about and as she said, by Monday, she was discharged. So, uh, it really was a miracle. I, I mean, as a doctor, I've never seen anything like this. In fact, when I first went down there, you know, uh, if I just depended on my medical training, I would told my family members switch off the machine because that's what it is. But I guess it was my faith in Jesus Christ at that time to press on, to believe that God can do a miracle. And He did a miracle in my sister's life. So I think a lesson to be learned is never give up. Even sometimes you look at the worst possible problems in our lives and you just got to trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has overcome for us. And we trust in Him, we can overcome our problems. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne and Ellen, for the powerful testimony. Thank you for making time to come and share with us. Let us pray as we look at the God's Word. Lord, I thank you for the miracles you have done in Suzanne and Ellen's life and the testimony we have heard from them. And we thank you. Pray that God, right now, may you open us from your word, encourage us, increase our faith. I pray that, Lord, today, your presence will be here to heal too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at, we're going to look at the word of God. We have heard testimony, how God miraculously healed Suzanne. And today, we're going to look at the Bible also, at the time when the church was starting. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. 
Three days again, three days miraculously, he rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and many believed in him. And later on, he was ascended into heaven and he promised the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon powerfully upon the believers and people believed to believe. At 3,000 believed. And a new church, uh, an infant church was born at that time. At that time, two of Jesus' disciples, Peter as well as John, he decided to go to the temple. Let's look at the Bible here. Let's look at the first four verses first. It's taken from Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the morning. Now, a man who was lame from birth was carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. There he was put every day to beg for those from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. We stop here for a while. If you look at this man, he was lame from birth. Right now, he is a man, adult now. He has no hope of getting better. Maybe he has accepted his fate, so-called, of a life of begging. Someone, maybe his friend, maybe his uh, relative, kind enough to bring him to the temple there to beg for money. Why temple? He believed maybe the religious people, they are kind, kinder. They can receive some money there. But that day was different. He saw Peter and John, and both of them called out to him. And he was surprised. Maybe he's going to get more money. What would these people offer him? Let's look at verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk, walk. When the man was hearing this, what was going through his mind? What? No money? You're not going to give me any money? And who is this person, Jesus? Oh, Jesus. He was the guy that claimed to be the saviour and he was crucified like a criminal. This Jesus, is in his name, is such an absurd thing. And wait, what are you asking me to do? Walk? I've never heard of this word in my life. Walk? It's a crazy thing. I'm not going to do that. But Peter offered his hand. And he took the lame man's hand. Verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. When Peter touched the man, there was power was flowing through into his body. He felt strength for the first time, both on his joint as well as his muscle and his leg. And he had this urge to stand up. Let's read on. Verse 8. He didn't just stand. He jumped. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went to them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Instead of slowing, slowly standing up, he jumped out. And this is a miracle by itself, a great miracle, because this guy, he was lame from birth. He did not know how to walk. He did not know how to, to stand. He did not know how to jump. First time, he knew to do all these things together. And he was looking at Peter and James. He was excited and realized that they are going to the temple to, to pray. He joined him. He was praising the Lord. He was singing hallelujah, jumping. Jesus have healed me. Jesus of Nazareth have healed me. He was not expecting anything that day. He was not expecting 
any healing. There was no faith in Him. But it was the faith of Peter and John in the Lord Jesus Christ that healed this man. Next, verse 9. When the people saw Him walking and praising God, they recognized Him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to Him. The crowd was also excited. They were filled with wonder. And today we are also filled with wonder about how God can heal Suzanne when she was declared brain dead. And even in the time of coma, God so-called ministered to her in, in the state of unconsciousness. There was a battle going on. And through the prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ, God miraculously bring her back to life. God rescued her. And Peter, when he heard the people were excited, Peter went on to tell them that the Jesus that you crucified, he was the one that healed this lame man. Verse 16, Peter said this, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that completely healed him, as you all see today. Peter went ahead and explained to them that Jesus, whom they thought was so-called uh, a, a fake person, they, they, they blasphemy, they handed him to the Romans' authority and he was crucified. He was the holy and righteous one. He was the author of life. It was faith in Jesus that healed that man. And Jesus, just as Jesus healed in the past, Jesus is still healing today. And Jesus wants us to call upon His name to heal. In fact, the name of God is called Jehovah Rapha, God who heals. Listen to what He told the church through one of His disciples, James. Let's look at James chapter 5. If anyone among you who is sick, let them call the elders or the leaders of the church to pray over them, anoint them with oil in the name of Jesus the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Why this promise? Because God still wants to heal today. And I believe His healing is not just physically. His healing also involves emotional healing and also spiritual healing. Today, if you are far away from God, just like Suzanne is, God wants to heal you. God wanted to bring you back. And if today you do not know God, you do not know Jesus, Jesus offers His life to you. He said, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are separated from God. But Jesus took the, our punishment. He died on the cross for you, for me. And He said, I will come into your life. You ask me to. And I will forgive your sins and cleanse you. That's spiritual healing. That's a great healing. In the same time, also today, if physically you are in need of healing, you can come and ask the Lord Jesus to heal you. And some of your loved ones or your friends who are sick, they are not here, you can come on their behalf and pray on their behalf too so that they can, they can be healed too. Peter ended the time by saying this to the people. Verse 19, Repent, change, turn back to God, and your sins will be wiped out. That times of refreshing, abundant life, meaningful life may come from the Lord. And that He may, 
He may send the Messiah who have appointed for, for you, even Jesus. Jesus is here today. If you have a problem, physical, emotional, spiritual, come to Jesus. Call upon the name of Jesus, whether for yourself or others, and He wants to heal you. And this is what we're going to do. Now we're going to have time for prayer. Later on, I'll ask the elders to come forward. The elders will be here. Go to the elders first. Elders will anoint you with oil as what James commanded.